So it's Acts Reenacted is our series at the moment. And uh, we're in week eight of our series and we're going into chapter eight today. So if you have Bibles, Acts chapter eight is where we're going. And the message is called the DNA of an evangelist. And uh, so uh, this is... This is something dear to me, and uh, hopefully it's a blessing to you today. A couple of weeks ago, we saw the establishment of a new group of people in the church who were appointed to join with the apostles in ministry and service. And uh, this is seen by most scholars as the first ever diaconate of the church. And their job was to take on the role of diaconia in the Greek, which means ministry. And uh, the apostles were doing ministry, but they needed other people to join in this area of ministry. While the apostles ministered in word, they needed people to minister in tables. The people operated on the same level. They were both ministers within the life of the church, but they obviously had different roles. Last week, we saw the short but powerful ministry of one of those deacons in Stephen. Now, just a bit of a disclaimer, if you're thinking about being a deacon for our church, which we do need for a turnover at the end of the year and stuff, um, don't worry, you won't get martyred like Stephen. All right, I'll just put it out there. I just read that and go, oh my goodness. Yeah, job description. You should, you should be a... No. Stephen left a great ch- the church a great helpful legacy. He left us a teaching that helped the church understand that anywhere they went would be holy ground because God resided in them as believers, not in the temple. His death also shook the church up enough to force them to scatter out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and the outer parts of the world as Jesus said that these guys should be doing anyway. My parting comment last week was quoting a friend of mine who's in Adelaide and he said it's time to take the salt that we have as a church and pour it out of the shaker and that's a well-known statement it's been made around the country and uh, that was the way that was the final comment I made here and and this is precisely what began to happen as the disciples began to scatter the church was entering a new phase it had gathered, been gathered together for some time and the church had grown in number in a really huge way. We're talking thousands upon thousands of people and we're probably about four years into its exist, existence at this stage. So it's a very large and vibrant community. The church had become a hothouse of discipleship. And in that hothouse, a church, the church has raised up a special breed of ministers for the task of world mission. It is a group who are well-trained and are willing and able to step into completely new environments to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Philip is the first of these new men. And as we go into chapter 8, we're going to learn about how he developed into this new role and how the church played their part in seeing guys like Philip grow, develop, be identified and actually succeed in the task that they had at hand. So let's go into Acts chapter 8, and uh, we're going to read verses eight, 1 to 8, and then we'll go through to 17, and I'll skip a few in the middle, and I'll touch on them next week, I promise. Acts, 1, here we go, Acts 8 verse 1. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city. Philip went down to a city uh, in Samaria and proclaimed the message, the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. 
With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Let's go to verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Let's leave it there for now. I'll tap on the verses I skipped. I'll touch on that next week. That's about Simon the sorcerer, and I will tap into that next week. The city of Jerusalem has gotten quite chaotic with Paul and the Jewish elders attacking the church. So the church has a bit of a problem at hand. But there's also a great opportunity that comes out of this. The apostles could hide within the city because they were assimilated to the Jerusalem culture. They were, the apostles were essentially Hebraic. They understood the Hebrew culture and, and could hide within the walls of Jerusalem relatively well. But after the death of Stephen... Greek-speaking disciples like Philip stood out a little bit too much. It was time to go, but despite the grief of leaving Jerusalem, he leaves with a sense of opportunity and a sense of, of vision as he eyes the town of Samaria. Now, Samaria was 50 k's up the road from Jerusalem. And Samaria used to be a really amazing city. It was built by King Omri. We read about him in, in, in Second Kings, and he was the father of King Ahab. And we've heard about Jezebel and Ahab and that sort of era. That's what we're talking about there. Samaria served as the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, while Ju Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Unfortunately, Omri and Ahab and all those that followed were actually quite wicked men. And God tried many times to warn them, but there was a godlessness about them that angered the Lord. And the city and the entire northern kingdom eventually fell to Assyria in 722 BC. The king of Assyria took the aristocratic population of the region into captivity and took them far east into the region of, of Assyria. And in their place, they settled captives from other nations. These captives then intermarried with the poorer Jews who remained, and then they brought all their gods and their idols with them into this once holy land. Judaism had a pretty strong presence. But so did all the other gods of the world too. Most Samaritan homes had a bit of a mixed altar in them, giving God token worship, but also giving time and space and worship to other idols as well. One recent theologian, John Stott, who passed away just last year, who was an amazing man of God. John Stott, he called the Samaritans a halfway house between the Jews and the Gentiles. So it became the natural progression. If you're going to go on a world mission, start with the Samaritans. That was a good way to go. 300 years into its existence as a people, they took certain steps which only served to further the divide between themselves and the Jews either side of them. While they, kept all, they did hold on to all their idols and that sort of stuff, but in their Jewishness, they decided that they would build themselves a temple to the Lord on Mount Gerizim. And they did that in 409 B.C. And they embraced a version of the Mosaic law, just the Pentateuch. They rejected out of hand and they shredded the rest of the Old Testament. But they took the Pentateuch and they reworded it to make sure that Mount Gerizim was the center of their worship by doing so. Their true loyalty to their, to their, their, loyalty to their Jewish roots 
actually failed them in 167 BC when their Israeli neighbors were being uh, persecuted by the king of Syria. When, they, when, these, when the Syrian king comes up, Antiochus comes up and visits the region and he sees Israel to the north and Judah, Judea, Judah to the south and he sees Samaria in the middle. He assumes it's all one place. Ah, you're all Jews. But the Samaritans spoke up and said, ah, 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 no, 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 no. You're going to slaughter all them. We know that. So we're the children of foreigners. We're not Jewish. Well, what about that temple on Mount Gerizim? Oh, that thing? That whole thing? Okay, here's the deal. Yeah, it's that Lord, that Jewish God. But you know what? You can have it. You can have it. Do what you want with it. And the temple to the Lord on Mount Gerizim was then dedicated to Jupiter's, Jupiter Olympus. And all the pagan stuff that came with all this idol worship was performed in what was once a, a once sacred place. As we engage with the first century and the New Testament, we see that the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews were, was really intense. Tempers would flare when a Samaritan and a Jew got together to speak of anything to do with the law or the temple. Both parties held polarizing view on the subject, and we saw it last week just how hostile the Jews could be when someone disagreed with them. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was deliberately picking his characters to invoke certain emotions to his audience because of the tensions that existed. When he said a Good Samaritan, the rest of the Jews there where his teaching were just spinning out going, how can anything from Samaria be good? It was supposed to shock them a bit. When Jesus walked through Samaria in John 4, he did what most of the Jewish population would not do. In fact, the average Jew would rather add loads of travel time to their journey to avoid walking on Samaritan soil. John made the point really clear in his, in his account in chapter 4. Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other. Still, even in the first century, there was enough Judaism within them to give them hope that the God of Israel had their interest at heart too. And they, like their Jewish neighbors, anticipated the coming Messiah. And we see that evident in the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. When she said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to make all these things clear to us. The basic theology of Samaria was this. Religion-wise, they were nominally Jewish. God was fine, but so was everything else. In the end, all roads end up at the same place when it's all said and done, and there's value in all religious thought. As long as you believe something, right? Many of the people here were born into somewhat Jewish settings, so God was in the picture, but they didn't dismiss other belief systems. To them, it was a classic case of each to their own. It all works out in the end. It's kind of like that necklace I've got on the screen there. There are people who wear that sort of thing, just trying to keep all their options open. Just in case this one don't work out, I've got something else to back me up. You know, God was kind of the backup plan for the Samaritans. Does that sound familiar today? Jen and I um, know a, a shopkeeper in Albury. We met them uh, uh, just recently, and he imports Balinese and Thai furniture. It's a nice little shop. Got some great-looking stuff. Uh, but, you know, he's got a Thai wife, and, and, and he's, he's got links with Christianity, and he was talking about people he knew, particularly here in Wang. And, uh, and, and he has links with Christianity, but he's okay with his wife having a Buddhist shrine in the house as well. Yeah, uh, when I was in um, when I was in Singapore, I've done some ministry in Singapore. Um, visited there a couple of times and preached and spoken with pastors. And there, one of their big frustrating things that they had was that they would have these people come in and give their life to Jesus in a really powerful way. 
but they wouldn't let go of their ancestry or their uh, their their Buddhist links or their other religious links, the Islamic links or other things, because they wanted to keep their religious options open for fear of dis, you know of uh, of uh, dishonoring parents or uh, or just keeping their options open because it's a polytheistic uh, sort of uh, society. So that was one of their frustrations. Why don't we just make Jesus Lord and stick at it? <laughs> but of course, they found that a bit difficult. Even today here in Wang, we know people who have been baptized into different religious orders, don't we? They were born into a, you know, I was born this or I was born that and I was baptized as an infant or I was, I was involved in this or I attended that. But how many know some of those people, their hearts are far from God, right? You know, they were born into something that their heart and their devotion doesn't back up. That's Samaritan mindset. That's Samaritan thinking right there. There was a big cultural and neighborly divide between Samaria and Israel. The Hebraic Jews of Jerusalem went as far as completely despising them. They couldn't understand where these people were coming from. And neither did they want to. Just think about that. Hang on, you want to be a Jew? We, got the, we, are the, we understand this Judaism pretty well. You don't want to embrace it. What's wrong with you? But out of Jerusalem came the challenge from Jesus himself. Be his witness there in Jerusalem, but eventually someone needed to be his witness in Samaria. The hassle was this. Even in the church, and we read this in earlier passages, to ask a Hebraic Jerusalem-based Jew to consider doing this was going to be a very difficult task. It was going to be uncomfortable. It would go against the grain. It would require a whole heap of dying to self to make it happen. But the one who had overcome all those things would have an amazing opportunity set before them and actually see success of what they did because God had opened a door. Today, this opportunity extends to our Samaria. The 27,000 people of our local municipality that exist outside the walls of our Jerusalem. For many Christians today in our city, reaching them is going to be a hard task. Studies actually show that most Christians either convert or alienate their unchurched friends within 12 months of conversion. That is the average figure. That they, for some reason, that we, after that sort of point, we essentially keep to our own and stay within our Christian holy huddle. So that first 12 months, it only takes a year for many Christians to kind of do that. Either they've, they've gotten really excited and all their friends have come with them into salvation or they've had to leave them by the wayside and sometimes by necessity. You know, maybe if they, were, if they were alcoholics and they had to get away from alcoholic friends, that was the price they had to pay to actually serve Jesus. So there's no, some of it's no shame, but other people just eventually just just push them to the side when we don't have our hand in on actually unchurched people in the community that's when the hebraic part of us starts to really develop and it's a risk that we we start to get our own language and our own holy huddle and we forget the language of the outside world and i dare say that the church of wangaratta has a pretty strong hebraic presence nowadays you know and uh, and that's definitely true about the church but but God, in his sovereignty, used the Jerusalem church and the insight of the Hebraic believers to raise up the right people for the job. And a young Hellenistic man named Philip emerges as the first evangelist to come out of Jerusalem. 
As we look at his makeup, we see that he has all the goods needed to, uh, to extend the church by reaching Samaritans. This guy's got the goods. This guy, has the, this guy fits the bill. He fits the job description perfectly. Some of this comes from his background. Philip is a Hellenized Jew, which means he has a bit of empathy for those who feel unwanted or looked down upon. He's grown up a Jew, but every year when he makes his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he's quickly reminded that he's a visitor there. He doesn't know the language. He tries to talk you know, with the people in the temple staff or the priests or the locals, and they all look at him and go, ah, Hellenized. He knows what it's like to kind of have people stare holes at him and, and kind of look down upon him and call him a sellout or call him less than his best. Philip probably has every reason to feel despondent about religion. And this helps him identify with the current mindset of the Samaritans. But the rest of his skill set came from the church. The text we've read here has shown just how valuable the church has been in getting this man ready to be a witness to Samaria. I've titled my message today, The DNA of an Evangelist. And my heart today is to set us up to get us all to a place where we as a church, as a church body, a church community, think evangelistically. Because we have a Samaria outside the city walls here that is awaiting, awaiting to hear the gospel preached. But I'm sharing this with the knowledge that in reality, some will be, some will be goers. Many of us have unchurched people that we really want to tap into and reach out to, and, and some of us will be able to go and, and, and find these Samaritans and win them to the Lord. But I also know, and I deeply respect the fact that in our church, there are some people that get a whole lot more done with their knees than their legs. They do a lot more praying, and actually they do a vital point in actually praying for the city and praying for the workers and, and, and encouraging and stuff like that. So together, we can evangelize a city. Some of us can do it by actually going and getting face-to-face with us. Others of us can pray, can equip, can train, can encourage, and actually bring, get these guys over the line and actually encourage the role of evangelism in our church. That's how it works. We might not all be at ground zero, but we can be part of it anyway. And this is how it all works. Let's look, this is the DNA of an evangelist, and, and we can take away from this, how, what do I need to develop if I want to be an evangelist? You can definitely take that away today. But also, what do I need to be to release evangelism to be part of this picture as well? So we've got four points, four parts to make up the DNA of an evangelist as told by Acts 8. First up, an effective evangelist has good theological foundations. We have a challenge before us. We're to take our understanding of Jesus Christ and his salvation and present that to people who have little or no familiarity with the subject. The issue of Christianity began out of Hebrew Israel. The story of Christ began with the Hebrews, but still had to be made available to the Greeks. That was done because the Holy Spirit gave the church a voice to do so. It wasn't because the Hebrews suddenly all knew Greek. They were speaking the wonders of God in the Grecian tongues outside of the world. And so God actually created this element to happen. But what what we're taking here is something that is Hebraic in nature. The gospel is a Hebraic in nature thing. And then attempting to communicate that in a Hellenized way. The risk is how much of that gets lost in translation. The aim is to get a pure, 
unadulterated, proper description of the gospel to people who need to hear it. And we've got to make it simple enough for them to be able to bite it. But will it get watered down to make it palatable? Will it get distorted because we don't quite have it right in our head? Will we look silly because we get stuck on the simplest of questions? Philip received good instruction in Jerusalem. And we see here that his training did not let him down. He was solid in his theology and he delivered it with fidelity and with character. He wasn't preaching about having the answers to life. He was preaching the Messiah and the kingdom of God. He didn't come as a guru. He was doing all that he could to elevate and magnify Jesus and not himself in his preaching. And the miracles that he did were in order to point to God and his power, nothing that he did in his own strength. We even see that when word got down the road to the apostles in Jerusalem, the message was getting to them clear as well. Samaritans are receiving the word of God, not the words of Philip. He knew what he knew from his Hebraic instructors, the apostles. He drew on their wisdom and spirit-led insight. He studied the scriptures himself and he learned and most likely consulted on how to make this stuff plain for his soon-to-be Hellenized audience. We learn from the story of the woman at the well that Samaritans were going to have some pretty strong lines of questioning to throw at Philip. She had all sorts of questions about theology, which mountain to worship on and all sorts of stuff. Jen and I have been involved in different alpha programs over the years. I've had times of deep discussion with lots of people who have become interested in what I do and therefore want conversation about that stuff. I've reached a conclusion. People are getting smarter. The questions that come out that came out in Samaria were going to be doozies. The questions that come out today are going to be no less complex. We need to stay in our game and know what we know. And evangelists to go out there need to know what they know. And we play a part in instructing that and helping that along. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. See, here's the deal. If you have hope, it's inevitable someone's going to ask. What will you say? Are we grounded as evangelists? Are we grounded in our theology? Do we know what we know about Jesus? Two, an evangelist knows how they are supposed to engage with their audience. Philip did two things when he spoke with the Samaritans here. It says that he preached and he proclaimed. They were carefully selected words that Luke uses here in his account. The Greek word for proclaim is caruso. This means to be a herald or a public crier. If you've seen medieval movies or stuff like Braveheart or any of those sort of movies... You may get the picture there where a king was going to visit a town or come upon them and actually check out his subjects. He would send a herald to go ahead to announce his coming and to proclaim, the king is coming, the king is coming. The disciples took upon themselves the role of heralds on behalf of their Messiah. When Jesus began his ministry, he heralded the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the disciples were doing the same thing. When they went in new towns and environments, they heralded their Messiah. The Samaritans in their Jewishness looked to the coming of the Messiah as much as any other Jew. The world out there 
has an anticipation too. We've got uncertain times. There's loads of things going on in that world out there. And from what I've seen, there's a sentiment out there that some people go, well, you know what? Somewhere on the way, someone's going to have to get in here and take it all over. There's got to be a higher power that's going to make sense of all this. There's people out there that are right now are in anticipation of something greater being making sense of all this stuff. In the same way that the, the Samaritan woman said, when the Messiah comes, he'll make all these things plain. There's, someone out, there's people out there that are saying the same thing about themselves and their state. It's up to us to identify with Christ and to present ourselves as an ambassador for his kingdom. We herald him with word and with action. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. So when they see us and when they hear us, the idea is that they glorify God because of what we are heralding to them. Then we have the Greek word for preaching, evangelizo. We get the word evangelism from this particular concept. Evangelizo means to bear glad tidings. See, the gospel message was good news, not news of peril. It was a story of love that saves from sin and death, not a pronouncement of judgment on every filthy sinner they could find. After the teaching of Stephen and his experience of both religion and the church, Philip was, in very good new, had very, was full of very good news for the Samaritans. He could finally sort out their theology on which mountain God was, was God's mountain. And he could solve that with the simple question of neither. It was all about heart and spirit and holy ground wherever a believer stood. He could sort out their despondency at religion by testifying about the acceptance of Christ and the accepting fellowship of believers where even Hebraic Jews that once hated them would consider them family. That's good news. Our city also needs evangels, bearers of glad tidings. It needs people who can identify with the deep spiritual and physical needs that exist here and be able to speak and communicate hope, love, and grace to those situations. We all have good news to share. If we know the love and grace of Jesus, we have good news to share. If we know the love and acceptance of a church body of believers, then we have good news to share out there. You know, if people out there who feel like they don't belong, we have good news of belonging that exists here. If people, uh, you know, there's loads of things that are out, there's lots of bad news out there, but there's loads of good news within our hearts and within this building. Romans 10.14 says this, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching evangelizo to them? Third, evangelists need empowerment. Philip's ministry was supported by God-empowered signs and miracles. Signs were said to accompany instruction, which Philip would no doubt have been giving lots of, and the great miracles caused the city to stop and pay close attention to what God was doing. Philip, being one of the seven, was selected because of his track record in the area of spirit empowerment and in wisdom and in character. And all of those things were on display as he engaged with the Samaritans. As we begin to engage with the world around us, I want to put this out there just a bit, that we need to walk with the spiritual authority that is available to us through the Holy Spirit. There's a common thread that has been appearing in our text in Acts so far that shows that the disciples had an edge that could only be God-placed. 
In Acts 4, the Sanhedrin notes that Peter and John were doing great things. But they were uncool, uh, unschooled, uneducated fellas. But their only redeeming fa- um, effect, the only redeeming feature about these guys was that they were marked as people who had been with Jesus and it stood out. In Acts 6, we read about Stephen doing miracles in the name and the power of Jesus and having spirit-placed wisdom that confounded the wisest minds. I'm not smart enough to do that. The Spirit of God is. And again, we see that God was using Philip to demonstrate the power of God. See, when we come to a place where we repent and we begin our faith in Christ, we do receive the Spirit of Jesus. And this Spirit presence teaches us all things and is our counselor and our comforter and the one who continues the teaching work of Jesus in our hearts. That part is true. But there is also a baptism or filling the Holy Spirit supplies that leads to empowering the recipient for greater witness. At Pentecost, this Spirit outpouring gave the church a newfound voice. But we also see the gifts of wisdom and gifts of miracles present throughout the passages that we've looked at thus far. Ephesians 5.8, Paul tells us this, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to the debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The Greek word for filled there is playru, meaning to fill to full measure. And the idea of playru is that it is to be a filling, a perpetual filling idea. The edge we need to be able to proclaim the wonders and the love and the grace of God with a spirit of wisdom and with genuine spirit-led authority comes by allowing the Holy Spirit to continually fill us, to equip us for the mission at hand. That was the power that Philip tapped into, and it's the power that I personally tap into every day. I wouldn't be a pastor today without the the Holy Spirit doing his work. Again, I'm not pushing for everyone to be speaking in tongues and pursuing all these charismatic gifts. Okay, I'm not. God gives those as, and God gives all gifts as He sees fit. It's His gifts to give. His gifts to give. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be going on. And for even here, when they received the Holy Spirit, there was no speaking in tongues mentioned. Just putting it out there. But I am saying that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do things beyond our own capability and understanding. It's okay to ask God for those sort of Holy Spirit-given gifts. Evangelists need empowerment. Finally, evangelists need encouragement. Our text today shows us the appropriate response of a church that releases and celebrates evangelists. Philip has been released to reach a new audience in Samaria. And the text now points to Peter and John and how they respond to the evangelistic work taking place out there. And John's John's response particularly interests me. If you read Luke's account, you'll actually find out that, that it was Peter, it was James and John, sons of thunder, who when a Samaritan town wouldn't receive Jesus, they went to Jesus and said, you want us to smoke them? Should we call down fire in this lot? In his youth, John was an intolerant individual, and so was Peter for that matter. Now they're told about the warm reception given to Philip, and they just have to come and see for themselves. But this time, the mindset of the disciples is now to see the Samaritans saved, not destroyed. The church leadership led the way in making the Jerusalem church aware that this people once despised, this people once misunderstood, this people kept at arm's length because they didn't agree with the way they led their life, were now brothers and sisters in Christ. They were family. The actions of the apostles in this passage takes the Samaritan Christians into a place of unprecedented fellowship. 
Philip had found a bunch of strays that were outside the faith and outside the, outside the perceived promise associated with Judaism. And Peter and John laid their hands on them, extending their ministry onto new believers, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that empowered for witness and ministry were now available to this ragtag neighboring bunch of misfits. Later in Acts, we're going to read how much gravity this last act had on Jewish believers. Philip indeed led them to Jesus. Before the apostles arrived, they were indeed saved. Quoting John Kelvin, they had received the spirit of adoption through their faith in Christ. If they'd gotten run over by a chariot that night, they would have been fine. They would have been face to face with Jesus. They'd been baptized. They'd made a very public confession of their faith in Christ. And we see here, that's about the measure of an evangelist's work. One of my favorite TV shows of the 90s, Seinfeld. One of the earlier episodes was Jerry Seinfeld, the character, going up to a car hire thing. He's gotten off an airport and he rocks up to the car hire desk and he goes to pick up his car that he's booked and he knows he's phoned ahead and he's booked and paid for and he shows up and they said, we don't have your car here. We don't have your booking on record. And he's gone, but I phoned through and I booked it. Well, we don't have it on the records here. But I was on the phone and you took my booking. Well, we don't have it here. And the conversation went from, so you know how to take my booking, but you don't know how to keep my booking. And that became the whole line of the show. You know how to take the booking, but don't know how to keep the booking. Evangelists are very good at taking the booking. They know how to get people to that point where they can place their faith in Christ. But they need others to help them keep the booking. What Philip and what the Samaritans needed here was a church leadership and a church community who will embrace and further instruct, train and empower the people they bring in. As a result, every believer therefore plays a part in evangelism and discipleship. Evangelists go, they gather, they find, they get the booking, they lead them to Christ. Then they come to us and we keep the booking together. That's the plan of evangelism. And with that is the greatest encouragement to people who are called to be evangelists today. So people effective in evangelism have four key areas of key ability. Grounded theology, skill and appropriate engagement, Holy Spirit empowerment, and church community encouragement. Now it's time to draw it a close. As we study the New Testament, we see evangelism was everyone's job and continues to be. It wasn't necessarily a vocation one took, but it was something that Christians just did. In Ephesians 4.11, we see that evangelists are a gift from Christ himself, which play a role in building up the church and building up and training believers. In 1 Timothy, Paul instructs a young protege to do the work of an evangelist. So we all have a part to play in this evangelism thing. We have a part to play in, in encouraging and clear the clear evangelists of the church, the ones who have that sort of calling or ones who are showing signs of that ability to connect. We need to identify them. We need to draw our own passion from them. Get around an evangelistic heart and they will be contagious on you. It's unbelievable. And we need to be willing to release them and to pray for them and encourage them and empower them in any way we possibly can. And we need to receive 
the people they bring in. The Jerusalem church was asked, the Hebraic Jews of Jerusalem, because that's all that remained at that stage, were being asked by the Hellenized Christians to receive Hellenized believers. We've got, to lay, we've got to love them. The apostles laid their hands on them. They extended their ministry onto Samaritans. And we need to be able to do the same for us, for, for us to grow. We're going to be a church that's going to reach Samaritans, people outside the faith, the immediate faith of Christianity. We've done all the shuffling, like I've said. You know, but now it's time to grow because we reach unchurched, uncouth, unsaved unfamiliar with the gospel people as long as we're able to take them in people like me who have that evangelistic gift are happy to go gather them you know people within here who have, there are people in this church that as I've gotten to know you have strong evan- gifts of evangelism there are people here that are gatherers and bringers and, and witnesses and, and, and you have faith to believe that Jesus can save anybody you know what from here on in we're going to receive the people that you gather we're going to be a church that is marked by that. But also, we're going to be a church that's going to be praying for you. It's going to commit to encouraging you. And some of us can't be doing too much on our feet nowadays. We can't be running around all the time, but we can do a heck of a lot on our knees. And we'll be praying for you. And together as a church, we're going to see people one to Christ. And we're all going to play a part in seeing that happen. The DNA of an evangelist. Some of us make it happen. Some of us are the people that do it. But whatever it is, we all play a part. 